I am Plant on the Line in Vancouver, British Columbia at thecommentary.ca. This past summer, Tom Rockman published uh, a new novel, The Imposters. It's the story of a writer, Dora Frenhofer, once successful, now aging and embittered. Her mind is going, and we see its descent and her desperation to finish her last book. Set in the weeks around March 2020, just as the pandemic was seizing the world, we get a sense of what it was like in Dora's London, England. She is alone. But as we see her life changing, we see some of the people who drift in and out or alongside her life. Each chapter is told from the perspective of a character with a connection to Dora, whether it's her missing brother, her estranged daughter, a former lover, or that one last remaining friend. The book draws out these characters and their isolation literally and figuratively, and it's a dazzling story that Rockman weaves, one that's riveting to the end. The struggles of a writer are throughout the book. We see a writer at the end of their career, as well as a character who appears to be at the beginning of theirs. I'll also ask Tom to reflect on writing and publishing, as well as how he measures success today. He joined me from Toronto back in late June, just as the book was released. He lives in London, where he was born, but was raised here in Vancouver. He uh, first appeared on the program in 2011, after the publication of his first novel, The Imperfectionist, which was an international bestseller and was translated into 25 languages. He was uh, last on in 2018 with another novel, The Italian Teacher. He attended the University of Toronto and the Columbia Journalism School. He was also a journalist with uh, the Associated Press. His website is at tomrockman.com. The Imposters is a Bond Street book from Penguin Harbor Random House, Canada. Please uh, welcome back to the Plant Online program, uh, Tom Rockman. Mr. Rockman, good morning. Good morning to you. Thanks for joining us. Um, I, I really enjoyed the book, and um, I'm—I mean, a, a lot of it takes place in the past when you when you talk about some of these characters and, and what happened before. But um, most of the action, I guess, takes place in, in these few months uh, after March 2020. Is that right? Yeah, I think that's probably true. Why, did something happen in March 2020? <laughs> I was going to ask you what your pandemic was like. Was it, was it mainly in England? It was, yeah. It was, I think it was mainly in one room in England, uh, mm. even more so. It was, yeah, it was, it was a, um, a strange time, wasn't it? Because yeah. it occurs to me that everybody in the world, maybe for the first time in history, was afflicted with the exact same problem at the exact same time, and yet it affected everybody very differently, depending on how it intersected with your life at that point. You know, if you happen to have a roommate, if you happen to have nobody, if you happen to have kids, if you happen to have a job or not, and what kind of job it was, and and so on and so on. And um, in my case, uh, it changed some things, and it changed, it didn't change other things. So in terms of being a writer, obviously you're spending a lot of time cooped up in a room looking at a screen, thinking about human beings beyond the screen. Anyway, and that might have been a lot of people's experience of the of the pandemic. Well, that's kind of the daily life for the writer. Anyway, however, one big difference in my case was that my, um, my office suddenly became uh, the, the living space of my whole family. So... I had also to become a, a school teacher to to teach my my little boy who was about five years old at the time, uh-huh. and um, and so there was all of that going on, and uh, it was uh, it was a strange time as well because I think that I like everybody else was looking out at the world through the screen before me a lot of the time and missing people, but also wondering what on earth was going on with humanity and. Um, there was, there, I think, because everybody was cooped up and stuck on computers and 
plundering other people and sometimes despising them. It was a, a very complicated, fraught, upsetting time that I don't believe we have even really begun to digest. I, I think that if you look back at the, I mean, certainly if I look back at the most important uh, historical events yeah. of, let's say, of you know my adult life, let's say you know the the, the fall of the the, um, the the Soviet Empire, which actually wasn't quite my adult life, but my teen life, my uh-huh. my life when I was paying attention to the news. You had that, and then you had September 11th, and you had the financial crash. And in each of those cases, I think that we now acknowledge that we only figured out the effects, the impacts, many, many years later, and uh, in some ways are still trying to assimilate quite what it all meant. And I think that's very much the case with the pandemic, that yeah. it's clearly shaken up society in a massive way that we haven't even begun to to cope with and figure out. And I, I think that, well, none of us wish to return to the pandemic. I do actually feel like there's a lot to think about going back to that period. And, I mean, I happen to have read a, a novel um, that was set in the pandemic time. And when I opened it, I wondered if I would really care to return, but actually I found myself incredibly engaged because it's we, we're still figuring it out, and in some ways we're, we've leapt uh, outdoors with such vigor and, and eagerness to get on with life that, that we haven't actually taken a chance to figure out what all of that meant and how it will impact society. So um, I hope that in a small way my novel as well, which isn't primarily a COVID novel, but but parts of it uh, definitely do take place during COVID and affect the characters. So uh, I hope that it's maybe a little contribution to that that uh, that conversation that we'll have. Yeah, there, there were moments in the book, like where, where Dora is standing in the doorway talking to the delivery man, um, or um, uh, 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 Rebecca Beck um, in Los Angeles, you know, dealing with apps and, and, and people in and around her, or Will in his uh, his uh, house and, and people coming in and dealing with them, where I actually felt kind of uneasy as I was reading it, because it, it, it reminded me of, of 2020 especially, and and th- those early days of the pandemic where we didn't know what was going to happen, or we were scared for our lives even, you know? Yeah, I mean, I think that a funny thing about, about the way that we deal with, with fear and threat is that uh, when they're present, then you can conjure all of the worst outcomes and it's terrifying and probably that's a useful evolutionary response because in predicting or imagining the worst outcomes then we often are able to fend them off but once you pass through the threat and you're looking at it in hindsight it's easy then to say well uh, you know what were we so worried about everything was okay in the end but actually if you can cast your mind back to that that period of March 2020, it was incredibly scary. It was terrifying in a way that actually we could feel again if there were a new threat like that. It's the the, the complete uncertainty and the terror of an invisible threat that you can't see and gauge and understand, and even the most capable minds in the world, uh, the most informed virologists and all the rest of it, at that point, just didn't know. All we knew is that this could devastate humanity, and that wasn't even an understatement. It really could have, and in in many respects, it did. And what's funny is that once it's behind us, then there's a uh, there's a tendency to, to discount that mm. that threat and to discount that terror and forget it. Um, but in fact, it did immense harm. It did so much harm, and 
it was justifiably terrifying. And uh, there's a, an element of, of another probably evolutionary development that once you've gone through the threat, you just kind of move on and look yeah. forward. And, and, um, and uh, that's, that's our understandable tendency, but it's also sometimes worth pausing and looking back and trying to figure out what on earth that was. Yeah. All the characters in the book, Tom, seem isolated, and, and not just because of COVID and, and circumstances reg, uh, with relation to that. They seem to me that they want something else, something better, um, perhaps somebody else. Um, they, may have, they may have people around them. Dora doesn't really, but um, they, they know what they want, but they can't get it, if you will. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, that, that's the, the feeling that I got. I was reading the book, and I found it extremely strong. That that um, um, I, I felt for a lot of the characters, not all of them, but I felt for a lot of them in, in how isolated they were and isolating their circumstances were. Yeah, I think that's true, and I think that that some of the characters, even when they are thronged by other people, can feel that way. And I think that anybody who has experienced solitude and loneliness, which I'm guessing is everybody, uh, has also had that particular quality of, of isolation where you are among other people. And I think that what it comes down to, well, it doesn't come down to one thing, but, but one element of it is the sense that you can't quite find the human beings that you want and that you need and that you long for. And it occurs to me that this is, this is in a way a search that Dora is definitely has undergone throughout her writing life yeah. because she's been creating characters in a way to find human beings that she can be with and, and find those people who match her, who, who she wants to find in the world and are scarce. And secondarily, I think that's me. I think that that is something that, uh, that affects me, that uh, I have a, a, an odd combination of being quite self-isolating but also having a a normal human yearning for other people, but then a a tendency to kind of run away from them, to escape them. And and I think that that uh, unconsciously has filtered into all of my writing, that um, there is an element of loneliness and not, it's nothing, it's not a, a distaste for human beings, although sometimes that does appear in stories in certain characters. It's more, in a way, it's the opposite. It's, it's a, uh, and melancholy that it is so hard to find the right people in life and you find very few and you only realize well into life that how, how few there really are despite the thousands of facebook friends that some people have yeah. that they're really going to be very few in your whole life and they're so important but they're rare and uh, exceedingly special and and if you have traveled around the world and lived in different places as I have, then you have a wonderful experience of that and seeing different places and meeting different people. You also have the the downside of leaving them behind and finding them scattered around the world, which is my experience now. And there's no way really to, to, to have everybody you want all in the same place once you've lived that way. Um, so I think as well a, a final point on that is that I tend to think that there's something about the period we're living in, the culture we're living in, the technology that we're living inside of that exacerbates and intensifies the sense of isolation, which is a great paradox given that the story of the past 15 years has been in some respect social media yeah. and all of the, the, in some 
some of the benefits and many of the the harms that it has done to society. But the whole nature of it is this concept of uh, of it being sociable, of it unifying people and connecting people and networking people. And it has in a certain respect, but I can't help but notice the parallel rise of this epidemic you hear it described as of loneliness yeah. in society. And I have to believe that there's something in that. It's as if we're living in an artifice of human connection and that you have the the only the, the semblance of this linkage, just as you have the semblance of 300 friends while maybe having none. And I think that uh, that, that, that in a way actually makes the lack of connection more difficult and it makes it harder to find venues to break through um, because everybody is is so addicted and engaged in what's happening on the little screen in front of them and feeling that there's there's somehow right where the conversation and the culture is because they are in a way that is where it's gone but it it's it, there's an absence there as well that i think is painful for us and we don't quite i uh, recognize we just feel the effect Indeed, indeed. The book says a lot, too, Tom, about writing um, and and uh, writing at the end of one's career, one's life, um, as well as someone who's clearly in the midst of it, like Danny, uh, midst of his career, I should say. Um, why do your thoughts seem to look at the end, if you will, or, 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 or um, not, um, I was going to say clear, clearly, but, but it, it, it's also sympathetic, especially in Dora's case. Um, the struggles of being a writer. Is that something that you wanted us, the reader, to, to, to say understand a little bit better? Yeah, I mean, I it wasn't to teach any lessons or anything, but it was for the combined reason that I was interested in thinking about the place of writing and the culture that I've described, the place of thoughtful writing and characters and the kind of focused concentration that is required to enter into those worlds, and separately the fact that that those who strive in writing or in any of the arts are generally condemned to some degree of failure, and it is a, um, a, a can be a lifelong bid to connect with other people, to have them finally pay attention to the to the sorts of ideas and the sorts of world that 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 you care about and you want to communicate, and that you can't necessarily get across spontaneously that the crowds never attended to your opinions and so you go to a little room and scribble them down and revise them and polish them and hope that someday you present them and people might find your particular experiences and your particular artistic thoughts uh, worth paying attention to and in most cases it fails in most cases people aren't interested they have other things and that's particularly true now when there are so many entertainments and distractions going on so uh, I suppose I was interested in exploring that because it's it's quite clearly something that that I have lived and thought about a lot and wondered what the place of of writing and and my writing could possibly be in the culture that I see around me. Um, and separately, you know, I, I, I of course I hope that the story the stories themselves could be interesting. But one thing that they have in common is that all of the different chapters in this book, telling the tale of a different of a different person, somehow connected to the main character Dora. Mm-hmm that each of them is in some way a variation on the idea of writing. Those variations are extremely varied, and, and uh, I, everything from the person writing stand-up comedy to the food writer in Paris to 
to somebody who who isn't writing but is imprisoned and then finds a pen. And I think that in all those cases, there's a different different version of of this idea of of quite how does it work? What is it for today? Has that ever happened to you in Amir's case, where he he, he writes his manuscript out in hand and gives it to someone and they lose it? <laughs> um, and he has uh, more to do it again. They, <laughs> more likely, they 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 int- intentionally dropped it into a bin. I would imagine, but no, I mean, I, I it hasn't specifically happened to me like that. But I think that everybody who is involved in writing has lives with a kind of terror of. Uh, of their work somehow being deleted or erased. And <laughs> I know that my father, who my father was a, a psychologist who wrote uh, many psychological books and articles and things like that. And um, towards the end of his life, he lived uh, with this kind of stacks of memory sticks everywhere and was constantly saving and yeah. saving things. And in this terror that that all of his work would or or particular pieces of work would somehow just vanish into the ether. And I think that that is a, uh, a quite reasonable and sensible response uh, to, to, to all of the effort you put into it and the, the risk that it, that it has of, of being deleted. But I suppose that one of the things this book is exploring is the secondary risk, not that it's deleted, but that it actually exists, but that people aren't interested, which, mm. has, which is a different kind of deletion. Yeah, there, there are books that Danny can't sell. Uh, yep. The door doesn't sell. Mm-hmm. Um, it, 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 by the way, that chapter on, on Danny is very funny. Um, there, there are laugh out loud moments. I, I sat here in my office laughing out loud in the middle of the night. <laughs> Good. Um, are, are some of those experiences, say on book tour, are those, are those ones you've had, perhaps? Oh yeah, for sure. That that I mean, that's very. I think that one thing that's clear in that one is that well, it is satirical and humorous. Uh, and in some way, it is also in some ways me venting my own experiences and in in a comic format. And I'm not that character, but I can sympathize with him because a lot of that uh, is the sort of thing that I've I've experienced. And there's a funny uh, double perspective that you have on it when you're going through those things. The one is that it's you you know that it's an incredible fort- good fortune that you have to even be there that. Your book has has been published, and that in itself, in my case, was was the aspiration when I started was that I would have a book published, and I've actually had several published, and sometimes people have even sent me around places to promote them, and all of it just feels like a a, a dream come true and the most uh, amazing luck that you've had that somehow the plan worked, and then. On the other, and by the way, all of that is is a massive adrenaline shot right to your ego. But then, separately, in those specific situations, you will often find yourself in extremely humiliating circumstances. So you're presented as a writer, and you stand up there, prepared to say something, and hopeful and excited about it. And then, you know, you turn up in the bookshop in San Francisco, thinking to yourself, "I can't believe I'm in San Francisco promoting a book, and nobody else came." Mm. And and the whole the whole thing was for nothing, and it's and the booksellers are looking at you awkwardly, and sometimes even impersonating uh, um, book buyers to <laughs> fill out the crowd. That really does happen, and and all other sorts of of very minor uh, humiliations that feel uh, quite painful and remind you of your insignificance, and remind you that you have no right to expect anything in the arts, uh, but you can be fed a certain sort of hope and you can buy a certain sort of hope and live it and 
and that can be painful. And the, the absurdity of all of that um, is something that I wanted to illustrate through this, this pretentious Brooklyn novelist who is off in Australia. He's, he's, he can't yeah. believe it. He's so excited. He's, he's finally going to be an important writer. And then he gets there, and he's uh, rather less important than he had hoped. He, he starts his career, I guess, wanting to be a great writer, and I think m most writers aspire to that, um, yet he realizes quickly that he can't get there. Um, for you, um, you seem to be a better writer than Danny. Um, what's the measure of success for you now after, after five books? Is, is it sales? Is it good notices? I mean, what do you think great means? It's a, it's a good question. Uh, I, I don't quite know because I, I was speaking to a New York books editor for an article that I wrote in the Globe and Mail uh, about, about uh, book promotion, actually. Mm -hmm. And, and there's a, when I spoke to him, he had this line, a number of things that he said to me uh, that were interesting. And one of them was that he was talking about Philip Roth, and he said to me that you know, Philip Roth, toward the end of his life, he had had success after success, triumph after triumph. Every novel was a, was a bestseller, pretty much, from his early, early days as a writer. And he died miserable that he hadn't won the Nobel Prize. Mm -hmm. And the, the, this editor said to me, for writers, you know, what is enough exactly? And that's a very it's a valid and, and rather um, punchy question because uh, it, it makes you wonder, like, what is the point? I mean, I don't mean the purpose. I mean, what is the end point mm -hmm. of all of this? What, do you get to a point of, of satisfaction? And I think that it varies person to person. I think in many cases it will never be enough for the simple fact that there isn't a place for literature that is large enough uh, for, to satisfy writers because um, whether it's their work or another's work, it just does not have the role in, in the culture that they wish that it would. So in a way it's an impossible um, uh, aspiration. But I think that in my own case, um, I think that there are two things that would feel like it had worked for me. One is to feel like uh, there was some, I had some sort of an, an audience out there, a meaningful audience l only large enough for me to be able to support myself and keep going, and, and hopefully larger than that, but, but a, an, an audience that was big enough that would allow me to have a certain momentum and propulsion in my career, that it would make sense to keep going. And then secondly, that specific people whose, whose, uh, whose opinions I really value as readers um, appreciated and what I did and thought that what I was doing was decent. And if those two things were in place, I think I would feel contented. And I think I would not feel contented if I felt like I was writing uh, long books and then dropping them into a chasm and hoping to hear it hit the ground and never hearing anything, which is sometimes what writing can feel like. That's hard to keep going with because the objective, whatever else, is to affect other people, to affect strangers and the people you respect. And if, you, if you're not doing that, then the three years you put into it might feel blissful, but it can also feel painful when you look away from the page and look at the world and its indifference. How do you come up with the characters' names? I usually have a long list of possible names that I, that I keep adding to as the character as I'm writing the story. So I'll start off with something that may or may not hold, but it'll be just, it'll be a sort of a holding name. Mm -hmm. And sometimes it, it ends up suiting the character well, but other times it, it, it rankles and feels like it's not there. It's not the right person 
uh, that I'm writing. And so I will try another, and I'll, you know, control uh, R, if that's the, <laughs> the command for, for replacing a name. And then suddenly it reads slightly differently. And I do that enough times until at a certain point it just feels right. It feels like the right person. And and uh, and then I go on from there. Why do you ask? Is there, well, is there a thought you had about my name? So many memorable names in, in this book. Uh, uh, I remember names from the, the Imperfectionists from, from hmm. before still. Hmm. I mean, all these years huh. later. Um, when I talk to people about that book, they, they remember the names of the characters huh. they liked or didn't like. And, and oh, okay. Well, that, 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 that's heartening to hear. Yeah. Um, the other thing is you spend a lot of time with these characters. I noticed as I was reading this book, The Imposters, um, they're, they're all fascinating, and I wanted to know more about them. I, I just found that I didn't like, I, I can't think of one that I really liked. Um, <laughs> what, what is it like for you? Because you have to, to, to live with them for a long time. Um, yeah. What's your relationship with them in terms of, of like or dislike? Well, it's uh, it's an interesting issue actually because um, you do sometimes hear people say of different narr- stories, whether they're written or in films or whatever, that you'll hear them. And it was something, for example, that was said commonly about about the television show Succession. People mm-hmm. say, "There's I hate all those characters. Nobody to like. I can't watch that." Some people would say, "I don't think it defeated the program, obviously, which is a roaring success for years." Yeah. So, um, but personally, the way I feel about it <clears throat> is that. I want stories about people who who I find fascinating and compelling. There's no character in the world who is my personal friend, and I'm not deluded to think that they are. Now, some of them I might find so um, so delightful that I wish that a version of them existed, but that isn't a necessary factor uh, in reading for me. And if I find a character uh, incredibly repugnant to to follow because I, I don't I find nothing interesting about them or I find them I find that then that is enough for me not to read perhaps but because I find them let's say um, morally dubious uh, or in some other way distasteful that could be a reason actually for me to read on because what I care about as a reader and as a writer is I'm really interested in other people in people who are different than I am who who, and, and understanding why people are different and what they're thinking and how they live. And, and I'd generally much rather read about a, a minor devil than a major saint, uh, personally. I find that, I find figuring out the mistakes that people make and the evil that people sometimes do and the, just the, 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 the harm that people, that even people who set out to be decent will so often do to one another is intriguing to me and compelling and it's much more uh, compelling to me than uh, sitting around thinking do i like character a or b or so forth so that tends to be the driving factor now separately in terms of writing i don't think that there are any characters i've ever written who are i mean you know main characters that is say mm-hmm. uh, i don't uh, who who i who i sort of dislike there are some there are definitely some minor little characters who who I, I write in a in a particularly negative way because there's something about them that I, I find uh, awful. But of the main characters, even if they have terrible flaws, uh, I personally feel a great deal of sympathy um, to towards them, if only in terms of understanding them, in the same way that a psychologist listening to a patient doesn't necessarily sit there thinking, I dislike this person for telling me this dark thought that they have. They try to understand the person, and that's 
that's really my approach too, that, that I end up gaining a sympathy because I'm thinking hard about what that person's motives are and their motivations. And they might not be mine. They might not be ones that I sympathize with. And they might have made terrible errors. But I'm still interested in understanding how they got to that place. Uh, much more than I am interested in in judging them or categorizing them as good or bad. Tom, this has been such a pleasure to talk to you about this book. I enjoyed reading it a great deal. Congratulations on it and continued good luck. I appreciate your time today. Thank you so much. Great talking to you. The book is called The Imposters. It's published by uh, Bond Street Books, which uh, is an imprint of uh, Penguin Random House Canada. Uh, The website for more is at tomrockman.com. Tom Rockman, join me on the line from Toronto in Vancouver. I'm Joseph Plato.